Well, again, my name is Dan. I'm a member here at Charlotte Chapel, and I'm here to preach God's word to us, so we're going to pray now. Our Father, who is sufficient for these things? Uh, We in ourselves, without you, uh, could not possibly listen to the Lord Jesus speak and believe unless you help us. And Father, I could not preach Jesus' words faithfully unless you help me. So please, would you be gracious to us tonight? Help us to hear the words of eternal life and believe them. Our Father, we ask that your word would be our guide, that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher, and that your glory would be our supreme concern. In Jesus' name, amen. Wonderful. Do you know how bank clerks can tell which money is real that they're given and which money is counterfeit? Well, it's not by studying counterfeit notes all day long. Uh, they can tell the difference because they've studied the real thing in minute detail, right? So they know what a 20-pound note looks like as it floats to the floor, and they know what a tenner feels like when they rub it against their face, and they know what a fiver smells like. You know, they, they know real money. And so when they're given fake money, they know when it's counterfeit. Now, if you're fooled by fake money, you might find that suddenly your wallet becomes kind of worthless and the fiver in your wallet can't buy you a meal deal at Boots. It would be a shame, but it's not the end of the world. But what happens if you're tricked into believing a fake Jesus? A fake Jesus is what people believe in when they've just thought about Jesus and they kind of say he is who they want him to be. You know, they don't listen to what he says about who he is and what he came to do. They just make it up. Do you trust a Jesus who exists only to fill up your bank account or keep your family happy as long as you have enough faith? That's a fake Jesus. Do you know a Jesus who demands that you just clean yourself up a little bit before you come to him? That's a fake Jesus. And what we discover in John chapter 6 is that if you trust in a fake Jesus, you're a fake disciple and you won't be saved. And that's why Jesus is kind in revealing himself in John chapter 6. That's why we need to pay attention to John chapter 6 because we cannot be trusting in a fake Jesus. We need to know the real Jesus. And he's revealing himself here. Now, John 6 is made up of two signs and two speeches. And it's a really, as you notice, really long chapter. So we're going to go fairly quickly through it. We're going to look at the two signs very briefly, summarize them in a sentence, and then spend the, most of our time on the two speeches, because they are the meat and bones uh, of Jesus' words. So, have a look down at verse 1 to verse 15. This is the first sign. Now, if you can imagine it, Jesus is sitting on top of this mountain in Galilee, and all of us are sitting there as his disciples, listening to him teach, and it's amazing. Maybe we're hearing something like the Sermon on the Mount. It's, It's awesome. But then behind us, we hear the kind of rumbling noise. And we turn and we see thousands upon thousands of people coming to Jesus because they've heard about this guy and they want to see him. And they're all here and they're desperate to see him. But as as things progress, as we see from verses 5 onwards, there's a big problem. There's no food. I I imagine most of us have heard the story. Uh, It's the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus takes five loaves and two fish from a boys' pack lunch, he looks up to heaven, gives thanks to God for them, and he hands out the five loaves and two fish. 
and 5,000 people have more than enough to eat. It's a miracle. It's actually one of the very few miracles that is in every one of the four Gospels. Jesus has just created food from nothing. He gave them bread from heaven, just like God gave manna to the Israelites in the wilderness. Now, if that happened to us today, if Jesus came today and he were to do this amazing miracle, we'd think, this is awesome, but the weight of it would be lost on us, I think. Because part of the life of a Jewish person around Galilee at that time is that we, they don't have supermarkets like we do. They live on a staple diet of bread and fish. And they spend 85% of their salary buying bread and fish every week. So that means, let's say you have a tenner for this week to spend on everything you can, or whatever you need to, not everything you can, and you have to spend 85% of that on bread and fish. You're, you're spending £8.50 buying bread, then you have £1.50 left to pay the doctor and buy clothes and whatever else you need to do. So when Jesus does this, the crowds are amazed, not just because, wow, Jesus is awesome, but because, wow, this guy's given me a pay increase of 85%. Do you see that? And so they're, they're amazed and overjoyed. Look at verse 14 and 15. They see Jesus as this great prophet, and they want to make him a worldly king by force. They want Jesus to destroy all their enemies and make them wildly rich. They love this worldly Jesus, so they come, in verse 15, to exalt him. They want to lift him up as their king. And if you're reading through John, you might be thinking, this is great. Finally, Jesus, the one we know is the, the word of God himself, come to save people. Finally, he's getting the recognition he deserves from thousands of people. And that makes Jesus' response all the more shocking. Have a look at verse 15. When Jesus sees that they want to come and make him king, he withdraws from them. He just walks away, back up the mountain. Because that's not who he is. Jesus is not your slot machine into which you put your kind of superficial faith to get out your materialistic stuff. That's a fake Jesus. So how can we summarize this sign in one sentence? Here it is. The crowds trust in a fake Jesus, so the real Jesus withdraws from them. So that's the first sign. The second sign now, you probably have heard of this one too. This is where Jesus is going to walk on the water. And this sign, if you have a look at verse 16 and verse 17, this is only for the disciples to see. The crowds don't get to see this sign. The disciples have begun traveling across the sea without Jesus. But as they're rowing, this great storm arises, right, threatening their lives in their rickety little rowboat, and they're terrified. But pay attention to what the Bible says. They're not terrified because of the storm. Look at verse, 19, uh, verse 18, pardon me, 18 and 19. Why are they terrified? They're terrified because they see someone, they think, or something, walking on the water towards them in this massive storm. But then, over the sounds of the crashing waves and the screaming winds, they hear a familiar voice. He said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. He says, I am, literally, ego eimi. He's actually quoting from the Old Testament. He's quoting the name of God. This is what God said to Moses when Moses said, God, what will I tell the people is your name? And he said, tell them ego eimi has sent you. 
And Jesus says, in the middle of this storm, walking towards them on the water, Ego Amy, I am. He's announcing himself as Yahweh, as God himself, come to rescue his people. This is not a prophet or a worldly king. This is Jesus Christ, the Holy One of God. And hearing and believing in this, look at verse 21. They're willing, they're excited to take Jesus into the boat. They gladly welcome him into the boat and instantly they're saved. So how do we summarize this sign in one sentence? Well, it's that the disciples trust in the real Jesus, so the real Jesus saves them. So that's the two signs. Now we're going to spend most of our time slowing down a little bit and looking at the speeches. So, in our first speech, Jesus addresses the crowd and he tells them all about the real Jesus, who he really is. So, the real Jesus, look at verse 25. The crowds finally find the real Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Jesus knows they're looking for the fake Jesus. So then the real Jesus stands up and speaks. Verse 27, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. He's saying, your vision is too small. You only see me as materialistically useful. Instead, see me as who I am, the Son of Man. That's a way of saying God's King. God's King, the Son of Man, who's come to give you eternal life. Spend your energy into getting the food that endures to eternal life. Not for looking for an 85% cash increase. So now what do they reply? Have a look at verse Uh, 28, what must we do to do the works that God requires? How do they think God works? They think God basically works like this. I have to work for my bread, right? I go fishing, I buy fish, I sell them at the market, then I can eat some of the fish I've caught, and I can then buy some bread and use that. I have to work hard for that. And Jesus, you're telling me that you've come to give me eternal life. Well, great. What do I have to do to get that? They're asking about working for it. How do I do it? And Jesus simply replies... Verse 29, the one thing you have to do is to believe in the one that God has sent. That is the work to do. But as as we go through the passage, it's clear. The crowds cannot do the one work required of them. The one thing they have to do is believe, and they can't do it. They keep asking Jesus to scan down. They keep asking Jesus to give us stuff. They're trusting in a fake Jesus. So, from verse 35 onwards, Jesus simplifies it even more for them, and he reveals to them who he really is and what he's come to do. I'm going to read the words of the real Jesus revealing who he really is. Verse 35. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Then have a look at verse 37. All those the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. And then in verse 39, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me. Then finally, my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Now there's so much in here. And we're going to come back to a lot of it. But I just want us to notice one thing for now. 
one thing to notice from what Jesus is saying. What is it that qualifies you to enjoy this welcoming, satisfying, eternal life from Jesus? There's only one thing to do, isn't there? And it's the easiest thing. It's to come to Jesus, to come to him like a person who's not eaten in weeks. Now, I want us to, to understand this a bit better. So, I, uh, I bought some breads, and we're going to do a little fun experiment. Now, I want you to imagine that you have not eaten in weeks. Let's say you've not eaten in two weeks' time, and you are walking along the street, and you see Charlotte Chapel, and you see me standing here with some bread, you think, I need that. So you hobble in, and you get to the back. Now, let's say when you got there, and you stood at the back looking at me holding this, you just stood there, and you said, oh, wow, that bread is really pretty. Look at that bread. Dan must have a great sourdough starter, right? That's really impressive. If you just stood there and did nothing else, you're going to die. You're on the brink of death. No good just looking at it. What if, instead of just staying there looking at it, you come forward, you sit in one of the front rows, super eager, and you sit, you take loads of notes, you want to learn all about the bread. Because you, you, you want to ask me loads of questions, you shout up, Dan, how do you make this bread? And I say it involves yeast and wheat and some other stuff. And I really don't know how to make bread. This is from Sainsbury's. <laughs> um, but anyway, you learn loads about the bread, all the doctrine of the bread, right? What good is that to you if that's all you do? Just sit there, maybe for years, learning about the bread. You're going to die. What if even you get up from that chair, you walk all the way up here, and you come right up to the bread, and you come to the bread. You come and stand, and you, you smell it, and you think, that's lovely bread. This is great. I'm going to put this on my mantelpiece. It's useless to you. You'll die. So when Jesus says, believe in me, or come to me, or look to me, all the ways he describes us here, what's he saying? He's saying, come to me like you come to bread. Come to me and like eat me. Genuinely eat me. Not look at me or learn about me. God sent Jesus to be the satisfying bread that we would actually come to him and take him. But so far, the real Jesus hasn't been very well received by the crowds. Have a look at verse 36. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. And, and now have a look at verse 41. We read that they have even begun to grumble against Jesus and his words. However, as Jesus goes on to say that the bread of life which they must eat is, in verse 51, his own flesh, this is just too much for them. They're no longer just grumbling among themselves. What are they doing in verse 52? They begin to argue sharply. Now, that's, that's a, it's a difficult word to translate. Literally, the word is, have a fight. Like, they begin to really get agitated about this. What is Jesus talking about? How can we eat his own flesh? Well, this brings us on to the second point. The first point, the real Jesus offers eternal life to everyone who comes to him. But the second point, Jesus offers eternal life to everyone who comes to him as the crucified king. Have a look at verse 53. These are, I think, the most provocative words of Jesus in the Bible. Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. 
I don't know what you make of that. Now, this isn't talking about the Lord's Supper, and it isn't talking about some kind of weird cannibalism. That's not it. In order to understand what Jesus is talking about, we have to look right back at the beginning of our passage at verse 4. Turn back to verse 4. In the middle of describing everything that's happening, John kind of stops and gives a little time stamp for what, where, what time of the year are we at, John? John says, now the Jewish Passover was near. The Jewish Passover. Now, my second prop, my final prop, you'll be glad to know, is this little house. My fiance had her birthday a couple of weeks ago, and we went pottery painting, and it was loads of fun. Um, I'm not very artistic. Now, everyone else there was wonderful, and she had this like, amazing blue mug that she etched in these beautiful white, like, intricate designs, and it was awesome. I couldn't do that, and so I picked out a house. I painted it white with a red roof, and that's how artistic I am. <laughs> but as I was painting it, I thought, oh, it's just like the houses that they had at the Passover time. So I painted a Passover house. Okay. Now, the Passover... Thousands of years before Jesus was speaking, the Israelites were in slavery, right, in Egypt. And they were worked really hard. But it wasn't just that they were suffering, they were also sinning. The Israelites in slavery were worshipping other gods. We learn about this in Deuteronomy, that they weren't worshipping the one true God, they were sinning against him. So even as they were in slavery, they were sinning. And God says, after years and years of slavery, enough is enough. Judgment is going to come to Egypt. And God tells his people, listen, I am sending the angel of death through the city, and he is going to punish everyone for their sins. The houses of everyone will be punished. The firstborn son of every house will die for their sins. But God is merciful, and God gave them a way out. He says, as you're living in your houses, what I want you to do is one night, take the most perfect lamb you can, the most perfect little lamb, and kill it. And I want you to eat its flesh. Eat it in in its entirety. Eat its flesh and take the blood and paint it on the little doorway there. What's the point of this? Why does God want them to do this? Because God is teaching them that if they want to be saved from salvation, he's going to do it for them. But someone has to die. Blood has to be spilt, and they have to partake in it. They have to have the blood painted on their doorways. They have to eat the flesh of the Passover lamb. Now, the only flesh and blood involved in the Passover was the flesh and blood of the lamb. So what is Jesus trying to tell the crowds? Have a look down again. We're just going to remind ourselves of what we're reading. Jesus says, verse 53, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. What's Jesus teaching them? What he's saying, I am the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. In order to have eternal life, it's no good trusting in a fake Jesus who's kind of too dignified. He's too good to get mucky with sinners like us. That's no good. That's a fake Jesus. The real Jesus wants you to come to him and eat and drink his death so that you can have life. Jesus does not pretend that he is offering life to people who deserve it. 
That's the point of him telling us about his flesh and blood. By telling them that they must eat his flesh and drink his blood, he's saying, I know you're sinners. In fact, the only people who I'm going to welcome are those who come to me saying, I'm a sinner, I need the flesh and blood. And he's guaranteeing that if we come to him as the crucified king, our sins will not be counted against us. Because just like in Israel, when they, pa- when they painted the blood on the doorway and they ate the flesh, they weren't punished. In the same way, Jesus is saying, if you're trusting in the Lord Jesus, though your sins are many, you will not be punished because he is punished for you. So, that's what Jesus says. The real Jesus is offering eternal life to everyone who comes to him as the crucified king. But there's just one problem. Still, no one is coming to him. And after more and more anger from the crowds, there's this eerie silence at the end of verse 58 and 59. Do you see that? They've, they're kind of getting more and more grumpy until they're just not interested anymore. That brings on to our second speech. Jesus now turns to the disciples to speak because it gets even worse. Many of those who were already following Jesus in verse 60 turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, this is such a hard teaching. Who can bear it? Now, I don't know how you rate preachers. I'm not going to ask you to rate me or any other of the pastors or preachers. But no matter how you rate preachers, Jesus is surely number one. Right? He's the one who created the human brain and knows the human minds. Therefore, he, he can teach us in ways that are just amazing, that make things wonderful to us and clear to us and deep to us so that we love them and believe them. That's what Jesus can do. But even when Jesus preached, people refused to come to the cross and believe. The greatest preacher who ever preached was not very fruitful in his ministry. Jesus' mission to give life to the world looks like it's failed. Can you believe that? We shouldn't believe that, right? He hasn't failed. But it looks like he's failed. Because not only will the crowds who are just strangers to Jesus, not only will they walk away from him, but even his own disciples, look at verse 66, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. And then even, look at verse 70 and 71. Jesus replied, have I not chosen you, the twelve? These are Jesus' best friends, his special apostles. Have I not chosen you, the twelve, yet one of you is a devil? He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. My goodness, doesn't it look like Jesus has failed his mission? Well, how does Jesus explain this apparent failure in his mission? Well, we need to turn back because we've skipped things as we've been going through this, which is normally naughty, but it's okay because we're going back over it. Have a look at verse 37. Jesus does not say, everyone's going to come to me and I'm going to give life to everyone. What does he say in verse 37? All those the Father gives to me will come to me. He makes it even clearer in verse 44 and 45. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them and I will raise them up on the last day. It's written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. 
Now, first, Jesus makes it really clear that no one is coming to him. No one is becoming a Christian. No one is going to believe in Jesus without God's sovereign intervention. Jesus is not into free will in this way. He's not into people saving themselves by just being spiritual enough and smart enough to get it. He's into God saving people, not people saving themselves. Now in verse 44, Jesus says, the Father must do what? What is is it that the Father must do? He's got to draw people. Now right off the bat, we know that he's not talking about painting. So what kind of drawing is this? What does it mean? Now we know... um, Words can have different meanings in different contexts. For example, if I say, oh, there's a real draft in here, I mean that there's some wind blowing in from the window and you should probably go close it. But if I say, oh, he got drafted, I don't mean that he was like taken away by the wind. I mean, he was taken, he was called up by the army to serve. Same word, two different meanings. And it's the same one with this word, draw. Because it can be a bit tricky to understand because it can have different meanings depending on the context. So, I'll give you the two meanings. It can either mean to like drag someone by force and against their will out of somewhere. For example, uh, when they, in Acts 21, when they dragged the Apostle Paul out of the temple by force against his will. That's how it can be used. Or it can mean to entice someone, to woo someone by an inward change. That's how it's used in Jeremiah 31. God says, I have drawn you with my unfailing love. So either God drags us kicking and screaming to Jesus, kind of holds our eyes open, makes us look at him, or God changes our desires from within so that we now want to come to Jesus. Those are the two options, right? Now what Jesus is saying here is not the first one. He's not dragging, God the Father is not dragging people against their will so that they just have to grumpily come to Jesus. It's the second inward sense that Jesus means. It's God changing desires. Now, this doesn't make it any less of God's sovereign work. God still has to do it, and it's something that no one can do by themselves. It's just that the Father is not dragging you against your will to Jesus. He's changing your will. He's he's changing your desires so that you can willfully and happily come to Jesus. Now, this makes sense. Have a look at verse 45. It makes sense of what he then describes about the Father teaching us, as well as the work of the Spirit in verse 63. Have a look at verse 63 with me. Jesus says, The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. So it is the Holy Spirit who is sent by the Father to give life to sinners Not by hitting them over the head and dragging them to Jesus, but by opening their eyes, letting them see Jesus for who he actually is. Because, my friends, Jesus is not in himself kind of ugly and disappointing and less good than you thought he was going to be. If he was, then maybe we'd have to be dragged against our will to get to him. But if we see him for how he actually is, then there's no way we could possibly think that he is less than anything. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. He doesn't trick us. He opens our eyes to see how amazing Jesus really is. So, why are so many people rejecting Jesus? Why are there fake disciples who stay around for a bit, but then fall away permanently? 
Well, it's because they have not been born again by the Spirit. Their desires have not been changed, so they still feel no love towards the crucified Christ, but only ambivalence or even disgust. But there are a few. Have a look at verse 67. So many of these disciples who are following have just abandoned Jesus. So he turns to his 12, his best friends. He says, you don't want to leave too, do you? He's not forcing them to stay. He's not saying, you better stay here or else. Right? He's not insecure. He's asking, are you going to leave too? I don't know, but I imagine there might be people here today who have been doing the Christian thing for a really long time and it's getting kind of boring and maybe you feel like it's getting time to give up. Church is not that interesting. Jesus doesn't seem that great. Jesus is asking, you don't want to leave too, do you? Look at what Simon Peter says. He expresses faith perfectly. This is real faith in the real Jesus. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. They see Jesus for who he really is. They hear his words, and they say, yes, this is him. This is the one. So, we've seen that God causes sinners to trust in the real crucified Jesus, and the real Jesus gives eternal life to everyone who comes to him. Now, that is the meat and bones of our passage. I just have three applications for us as we close up. First of all, to the unsatisfied ones. Now, I know that most of us here have eaten the bread of life. We know what it's like to have that emptiness inside filled by seeing Jesus, knowing the love he has for us. But how often, brothers and sisters, do you go to church on a Sunday Love the Lord Jesus. Be satisfied by him. But then on a Wednesday, you just feel empty. And you turn not to Jesus, but to Netflix. Or not to Jesus, but to food. Or whatever it is. You don't need to be born again again. That's not the point. But we need to come to the Lord Jesus again. Keep coming. He is the bread that we have to eat repeatedly. Do you remember in the wilderness, God didn't give manna just once for the Israelites. It came once, and then it came the next day, and the next day, and the next day. God always provides for his people. But I also imagine that among us, there are those of us who have never really been satisfied. You've never eaten the bread of life. You don't know what it's like to be happy genuinely be satisfied, to be really full, to have that black hole of neediness filled within you. So Jesus is saying to you today, call off the search. Stop looking everywhere else. You've looked at for happiness and joy in your work, in getting more money, in getting the love of your friends and family even more, getting your wife to really care about you, your husband to really think you're amazing. Then maybe then, if we had a happy marriage, it would be okay we'd be happy. If my friends really thought I was great at that or really funny, then it would be good. Maybe we've turned to, to drink 
or to food just to satisfy that emptiness inside because we know that our stomachs aren't our souls. But maybe if we fill the stomachs enough, some of the joy will kind of overflow into our soul and then I'll, I'll feel a bit more satisfied. Or maybe you've turned to illicit things, to, to illicit sex or pornography or all kinds of worthless things that the world offers you to satisfy you, but you found that all they are is bread that spoils. They just go moldy, don't they? And Jesus is looking at you, smiling and saying, friend, the search is over. Come to me. Look at verse 35 again. He is the bread of life. If you're hungry, if you're thirsty, come to Jesus. Not to everything else. Come to him and eat him. Jesus is one of the only people in the whole world who will not shortchange you. He'll offer something and he will follow through. My challenge to you, if, you're, if you think that's probably you, you've never actually eaten the bread of life, is not necessarily right now to become a Christian, but my challenge to you is this week, just read verse 35 every day and ask Jesus to fill you, to see what happens. That's our first application to the unsatisfied ones. The second one, oh, whoops. It's gone. That's okay. The second one is to the evangelizing ones. Now, those among us who are Christians, those of us who are always prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have in Christ, who want to season all of our conversations with, uh, with the salt of the gospel of grace, right? That's, that's what so many of us want to do. But don't we suck at it? I suck at it. I know some of you are actually really good at it, but I'm really bad at it. And even when I pluck up the courage to, to tell someone about the Lord Jesus, I'm so disappointed by their response. Right? They're just not interested. Well, this is the wonderful news of this passage. God is sovereign in salvation. It is the Holy Spirit who gives life and not us. It is the Almighty Father who loves all people. He, he is the one who draws people to Jesus, not us. It's not your job. You have one calling. The sovereign God, who is sovereign over salvation, gives Christian one sovereign command. And it's this. Philippians chapter 2, verse 15. Shine like stars in the world, holding firmly to the word of life, which is the gospel. Shine like stars, brothers and sisters. That is your only job. I want us to think about stars for a moment. The job of a star is not to move itself around to as many planets as it possibly can so that all the planets can see it and make loads of, you know, ob uh, the telescopes to look at the star and think, wow, that star's amazing. That's not the job of the star. God decides where stars are put. And God decides which planets are going to orbit the star and at which distance. So what is the job of a star? It's just to shine, to shine as brightly as the star possibly can. Brothers and sisters, our job is just to speak the words of eternal life to others, to evangelize, live the gospel, be hospitable, be loving, be kind, share the words of Jesus, the offer of the crucified king. That's your job, not to make people into Christians, but to show people Christ. 
So do not judge your evangelism and do not judge our missionaries on their fruitfulness, on the numbers of how many people came to Christ. Judge them and judge each other and judge ourselves on our faithfulness. If we're not being faithful, brothers and sisters, we're kind of fudging the gospel numbers a little bit so that we don't have to say that bit about sin when we evangelize. Then we're not shining. We need to shine brightly. And finally, to the frightened ones. For those among us who look at our Christian lives and we just see ourselves drifting away. We fear that we've sinned one too many times. You know, Jesus can tolerate about 89 sins, but we've just sinned the 8,009th. And you just think, he's got to be fed up with me. You fear Jesus. You don't want to come to him because he's not interested in me anyway. And even if he was, he'd be very disappointed. If that's you, I know that's been me in the last week. If that's you, hear the words of Jesus. Verse 37. Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. No matter what, Jesus is saying, through hell or high water, I will never drive you away. But you want to say, no, but my sins have piled way too high. They're like this massive mountain, and Jesus is not going to come over it for me. I'm out. I've been kicked out. What a lie. The maker of mountains will flatten them to get to you. He's promised to do it. And he took the mountain of your sin, and he crushed it on the cross. So that, Christian, if you're trusting in Jesus, no matter how you might feel in the moment, you are loved by him with no condemnation. Now, a preacher long ago said this. But let me ask you, suppose that you came to Jesus and he drove you away. With what hands would he do that? Well, with his own hands, you answer. Okay, I ask again, with what hands would he do it? Well, with his own hands, you answer. Would he do it with those hands which still have the marks of the nails? No. The crucified one cannot reject the sinner. He has no hands to do such a cruel work as that. For he has given both of his hands to be nailed to the tree for guilty men. He has neither hand nor heart nor foot with which to reject sinners. For all of these have been pierced in his death for sinners. Therefore, he cannot drive anyone away if they come to him. The words of the real Jesus are not, clean yourself up, get a little bit better, and then you can come to me. The words of the real Jesus are, come to me, and I will never drive you away. The real Jesus is the crucified Jesus. The real Jesus is the one who sees sinners in their need and their neediness. And he moves towards them to love them, to fill them up, to forgive them. And real disciples, they just come to him. That's all we have to do, brothers and sisters. Just come to him. So, don't we need the Spirit's help to do this? 
the Lord Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. Let's pray. Our Father, in ourselves there is no way we would come to you. Not because you are less, but because we are blind. But Father, thank you for your loving care for us, that you have opened our eyes to see the Lord Jesus for who he is. Not a fake Jesus who pushes us away and will kick us out of the boat, but the real Jesus who welcomes us and who loves us through all things. Our Father, please help us this week to go to him, to believe his words, that everyone who comes to him finds a warm, warm welcome. Our Father, please help us this week in these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Wonderful, do stand as we sing our final song.